Hello there. Welcome to this episode of F Sharp's Digital Music Monthly Podcast. This time we were lucky to sit down with Rose Noon. Uh, Rose's career in the music business has spanned two decades. She's been an A&R person and a manager. As an A&R person, Rose has been involved with artists such as Nine Inch Nails, Tripping Daisy, Tracy Bonham, Macy Gray, Howie Day, Shakira, Fiona Apple, Spy Mob. I could go on and on and on. Uh, we spoke to Rose about the music business, how it's changed in the last 20 or so years, um, about working with brands and how they can sometimes really help an artist's career. And also we talked to her about the, well, we talked to her about what the future may hold for labels, artists, managers, roadies. No, we didn't talk about roadies, although uh, that should be another podcast. All right, well, here we go. Hi, Rose. Hi, Ken. <laughs> Uh, tell me a little bit about how you got started in the music. Well, first of all, what do you do? Um, I run a management company called Rise Music with um, two dear friends, and um, we're a small boutique management company, and we've been going for about three and a half years now, well, going on four. Um, started in England after I left Warner Brothers. Before that, I worked at major record labels for 20 years. Wow. <laughs> That's a long time. That's a long time. How did you get your start? It's very funny. I mean, I literally, I wish I could say I was really clever and had a plan and went for it um, like my husband did, who did everything he could to get an A&R job and get in. I fell into it, just like Forrest Gump. I mean, basically, basically, I loved music. I booked a small little club in the West Village. It was sort of like an unplugged, but I wasn't clever enough to call it unplugged. We just called it an acoustic night. And we took bands from the East Village, and they played unplugged gigs during the week in the West Village, and it was quite successful. So I met a lot of label people, a lot of managers, a lot of artists, and I just I did it more so because it was fun, and it was an extra kind of part-time job. Through that, I met a lot of people, and um, one of the bands was Nine Inch Nails. And um, at the time, my boyfriend, now my husband, was trying to sign Nine Inch Nails, and I moved over to England, and um, they needed someone in the UK, I was working in a coffee shop trying to write the great American novel, and they needed someone that saw Nine Inch Nails live, and James and I were the only two people in England at the time. So they wow. gave me a job. Wow. So I went in, and I started calling colleges around England about Nine Inch Nails, and I said, that it was, you know, I was 21. I was like, okay, let me get this straight. And I was a little friendly with them at the time. You know, I knew them from when they played New York and stuff, and I knew a lot of people at TVT. And um, so, you know, I would talk about, you know, how they started. I saw their first gig at the China Club, and I was like, this is great. They're paying me to get on the phone and talk about a band I love. This is really weird. This isn't like a job at all. So then they gave me three more jobs like that. One of the bands I didn't like, I won't name them, but, you know, another one was uh, PJ Harvey. One of them was Deus. I mean, most of them are really cool because that's what they were marketing to the universities. And um, they liked what I did there, so then they transferred me into the marketing department where my first job was to do a corporate film with a TV personality called Steve Morley, and we had a blast. We called it Looking for Grace Jones, and we had this green cape like going out of the screen the whole time, and we had, we had a lot of fun with it. So then they gave me two more marketing projects. Then eventually they said, why don't we make her an employee? So then they transferred me over to Island Pictures, um, at the time, it wasn't called that. It was called Island World. And I started um, marketing uh, videos, a lot of a lot of anime, a lot of like Akira, stuff like that, a lot of documentaries and stuff. 
And then one day, I got a call, and my husband said he worked at Ireland as well. Uh, believe it or not, Chris Blackwell wants two people to travel around America and look for bands. And at this point, I was about 24, and I was like, wow, this is really not a job. <laughs> so, so I was like, this is great. Are you kidding me? And we were ready to move back to America. So we, we did that. And when we got off the road, we had signed a few things. We saw the, all of the United States. And I went back to the head of marketing in New York. And I said, where should I sit? And he goes, you're an A&R. And I'm like, I don't know how to do A&R. <laughs> <laughs> and he goes, well, that's where the job is. So you're either an A&R person or you don't have a job. I said, I guess I'm an A&R person. Wow. And that's how I started. That's amazing. Yeah. Wow. And I had a couple of really lucky breaks when I first got into A&R. And I'm like, this isn't hard at all. And then I went through a, like four years of cold patch. <laughs> then I got kind of, you know, it, it went up and down in waves, A&R, as you know. Yeah, right. It can. Yeah. You, you can't that? hit them all. <laughs> <laughs> what was the first band you signed? Tripping Daisy. And it was kind of funny because I called around and, you know, I was such a geek. I'm like, hi, I'm Rose from Island Records, and I'm wondering, are there any great bands in town? And I called DJs and record stores and um, weekly papers, like creative loafing and stuff. And um, this this DJ from the alternative station there said to me, oh, God, you are actually he was the music director, to be fair. He said, you should come down and see us band Tripping Daisy. So we drove down. Believe it or not, we drove. And, <laughs> and when we got there, there was this huge line outside this record store. And I said, oh, who's that? That's Tripping Daisy's in-store. And I'm like, who else is signing? <laughs> I got a girl who lives with me. I got a girl, she smells so sweetly. I got a girl, she loves her dog. I got a girl, I love her dog too. I got a girl who stares in the mirror. I got a girl who blames it on her period. I got a girl, she is so right. I got a girl, she's my They had a huge draw in Texas, um, and so that was that was a fairly that had a really good platform to go off of. And then the second act uh, we signed, um, well, I signed, um, was Tracy Bonham. And when we went to her gig in Boston, now I found her through an indie publicist in Boston, who sent us the demo, and we were like, wow. When we went to that gig, there were three people at it. Wow. So it was like polar opposites. It was kind of funny. Wow, that's yeah. amazing. Yeah. Mother, mother, how's the family? I'm just calling to say hello. How's the weather? How's my father? Am I lonely? Heavens, no. Mother, mother. Give a little backstory about. It was at the height of um, pop guitar. Um, it was, let's see, like, 
I suppose it was like mid-90s, right? And, you know, it was when Z100 was playing, you know, Stone Temple Pilots and all that kind of stuff. And they both kind of fit into that category. And they both were very timely at the moment. Um, and they did really well. And Island Records at the time in America didn't really have a lot of acts like that. Um, it was back in the days where you could sign something off a CD only. They didn't need a fan base. Wow. If you didn't, you know, it was great Tripping Daisy had one, you know. Um, but like I said, Tracy Bonham had no fan base. And record labels did that back then. Not so much. Well, some do. Some do. But, yeah. But they kind of want you to come to the table built in now and, and ready to go. Yeah, they really do. They, you know, it, it's the music is important, but having some sort of uh, solid foundation is as well. Right. Um, yeah, it's. It's a different world. Everyone wants everything all packaged. Yeah, they really do. But it's easier to do that, too, today. So there's an advantage to... There's a disadvantage in the fact that a lot of artist development has to be done by the manager and the artist, I believe, today. Mostly, the, frankly, primarily the artist. And um, however, it is easier to do it today. Because back in the days when... You know, even, even when I signed Howie Day, who had a fairly big fan base when I signed him... Um, it was still, DIY was a little bit harder. So you went from Island, which was, I don't want to say it's a major, but it's kind of very big indie to a major? Well, it's, when I first went there, they were an indie. Okay. And then they joined Polygram. But it was, you know, it was a very big indie at the time. And it was right on the cusp of when they were going to join Polygram. So, like, I caught the tail end of the indie days at Island. <laughs> <laughs> and then how did you get from Island to Sony? Um, I, after, after Tripping Daisy and Tracy did well, um, I got a lot of job offers, basically, and I, I, so did James, that's my husband, and we had to choose between um, a few labels, and uh, and I was ready to leave Island at the time because there was a lot of um, we were I was there for I wasn't there as long as James, but between England and America, I'd say I was probably there about five or six years, but it was going through this horrible transition Island, and there was a lot of uh, politics going around because the Polygram merger still hadn't really, the dust hadn't really settled. So it was it was it was hard. I kind of felt like some of the bands were suffering due to that and it was getting very frustrating. You know, I was about 25 or 26 at the time and you know, back that's at the point in your career where anything happens in your bands, you're just outraged and it this is wrong and you know, everything's super highly hyper and dramatic and you know, you don't realize that, you know, a certain percentage make it and a certain don't unfortunately and you know, there's a lot of factors. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so. Um, all right. So then, uh, moving us quickly through the '90s, because it's <laughs> it's a it's an amazing thing to think that uh, you, you know, were kind of you got your start in this business at its some say inflated height in the '90s. I saw a bit of that heyday. Yeah, those were good days. Yep, yep. People like me got signed. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone was getting signed. <laughs> um, all the way through to there not really being much of a music industry. So. Oh yeah. Um, <laughs> um, well, it, it's funny because you evolve as an A and R person, and I think that when you get older as an A and R person, you're much more useful to your artists. And I think it's a little having done it for so long. I think if I knew what I learned at so. Sony and some of the things I did at Sony when I was at Island, I think a lot of my bands would have been better off because you're sort of, in some ways, especially back then, not so much now, 
there aren't a lot of A and R people out there anymore. But <laughs> but um, you're 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 kind of the manager in the record label, so to speak. But you're also in charge of helping them get their record together, um, taking care of the budgets, helping them pick a producer. You know, in the 40s, 50s, it really was artists and repertoire. You'd find their songs. That happens in the pop world, but not so much in, you know, the indie world, right. you know. Um, but it's still called artists and repertoire or artists and um, recreation, some people call it. <laughs> <laughs> we met kind of around when you were still at Island. Cause I right. Remember, uh, I remember Tripping Daisy really well. Um, I remember, what was the song about A&R people on that album? Which one? On the Tripping Daisy album. Um, not piranhas, is that it? Oh, yeah, piranhas. Yeah, that was piranhas, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you're right. That was the second record. <laughs> yeah. So, okay, you're at Sony now, and are you still signing things? Is it a different process now to... Um, are there? Are you given bands to work? Or are you still both playing? at Sony? Um, it happened a little bit at Island, more so to James because he was more seasoned an A and R person. Um, but a little bit at Island, you know. We but at Sony, it was definitely you know an even balance, so to speak, especially towards the end. So I was there for ten years. Wow. Yeah. So I blinked, and it was like <laughs> ding. But um, I signed a lot more. Um, pop stuff at Sony. Um, not so much intentionally. It just seemed like that's where the hole was in the roster. Because, you know, they had Pearl Jam, Oasis. They had a lot of guitar bands, whereas Island really had a lot of, like, world bands and left-to-center bands. U2. U2? Well, you, they had you 2 yeah. But you can't really put them in the same category. Well, so. <laughs> <laughs> but um, <laughs> they're a whole genre on their yeah, own. Yeah, on their own. <laughs> So I signed um, I, I signed Macy Gray with my husband James. I believe that faith has brought us here And we should be together, babe But we're not um, I signed Howie Day when I was there The dawn is breaking A light shining through you're barely waking And I'm tangled up in you Yeah We signed um, a band called Spy Mob that eventually became uh, N-E-R-D uh, -E for um, Pharrell. They're a great band. What? But they were more... Um, they were very different when they were Spy Mom, but they were they were amazing players. Um, I A&R'd Shakira for a little while, Fiona Apple. Um, I'm forgetting a few here. <laughs> it was 10 years. <laughs> um, so did you— um, Macy was fun to work with. I bet. Yeah, I, I'm not gonna. Us, I'm not gonna tell some of those stories. No messy stories. No well, story. they're kind of long, but I mean, she she was just funny. She was just a character, you know. It was That's yeah, sure. yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you met her with me. I did. Yeah, yeah. I did. One of my favorite memories, actually, of being in LA when you guys were out there, was James playing me the demo for I Try. Oh, and right. Being, and saying, "Well, you think it's a hit." I thought, wow, everybody's getting houses out of this one. <laughs> <laughs> we did. <Yeah. laughs> did you guys ever, when you were at different companies, try to sign the same band? Um, he sent someone down to Howie Day halfway through me trying to sign it. And I was like, what are you doing? 
and and there were there were some occasions where, but you know, there's like a gatekeeper system. You know, no matter where you are in A and R. Like at the time, I was pretty senior, and so was James. But you still have a couple people you have to go through in order to get the signing sanctioned. You know, and when you're a scout, there's like massive amount of layers and then sometimes it's just you know it's too late in the year or you know some of the artists I didn't get to sign through the years just kills me but you know you you, there's reasons why some artists get signed to some labels and don't you know so there's not much but yeah so Sony was a long time and then I went to um, then I did leave and I went to Warner Brothers UK with James so we went on and off and on and off okay yeah. Um, and now this is uh, this is sort of at the point where the music industry is totally imploding on itself. Oh yeah. You had what was that like on the inside? Um, well, did you see it coming? Yes. Yeah, you could see it coming. Um, it happened pretty quick though. Um, but, but you know, a lot of people were just in denial. You know, stop the downloading, stop this, stop that. Instead of you know maybe embracing it. But you know, hindsight's twenty twenty, I suppose. And um, but it was, you know, it, it it was it was it was definitely I mean, we we signed a band in England called The Enemy with our scout Paul Barton at the time. Um and they did really well. Now that was a classic case of a band that had hardly any fan base when they signed. And by the time we were done, they were triple platinum in England. Um, very UK centric, you know. Um, I kind of referred to them as like an English Green Day. I don't know if they would like that, but it's a compliment for me. Mm-hmm. But you know, it, I lived in England twice, and it was very different each time. The first time was during Manchester. And everything, Seattle was going off over here. And you wouldn't even know, almost. It was like two separate universes. Absolutely. And this time was sort of, uh, the the second time was fairly similar, but not as obvious. Things were crossing over a bit more. Bands were coming over here, you know. Um, American bands were coming over there. But um, I feel like in that first wave, it was Nirvana. Mm -hmm. um, And then odd things like Tad. Yes. Did really, really well in England. Yeah, yeah. And you know, the English still go nuts for Mark Lanigan. Mm-hmm. Mark Lanigan has a very hard time getting any attention. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Whereas I think that second second phase, um, there was more of a crossover. Um, yeah, and it's also, I mean, maybe not. I'm not not too sure about ac- this exact present moment, but definitely the last few years, a lot more pop. Yeah. You know, a lot more pop. So Sony was really good at picking European markets and breaking the artists out of there, even if they were American, like Jeff Buckley in France, Macy in England. Everyone thought Macy was English for the first year. Really? Well, Giant Step worked it. It kind of blew up in England first. I mean, I don't know how, because when she spoke, I'm like, hello. (laughs) 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 So, (laughs) But but honestly, there were a lot of people like, oh, isn't she from London? I'm like, no. No. It's funny, yeah. I imagine if people hadn't heard her talk. Yeah, well, maybe that was it. Maybe they read articles or just heard her on the radio and, you know, didn't really, I I don't know. But a lot of people would say that. But, yeah, I I mean, I think you can bring things over from England. I think sometimes some of the left-to-center pop and rock and stuff definitely gets a little more embraced over there. I think Mm. it's a little more eclectic. But I think that, honestly, I think a lot of that's geography. Hmm. You know, like I said, it's more concentrated. It's easier to hit the people that might embrace that. You know, here it's very 
vast, you know? We stayed at Warner Brothers for three years in the UK. Um, It was a very tense time in the music business. People were definitely, you know, you could feel the tension around the air in a lot of places sort of decline. But I hate to sound like a Pollyanna, but I kind of think in some ways we've now gone back to that era where, um, like, my artist Zia V on Rise, she did a children's album in two weeks mm-hmm. up in Woodstock, New York. We're putting it out um, on Little Monsters through Burnside distribution. Downtown's going to work the sinks. And we're doing this on a very limited budget. It's She's already in USA Today and all these other, you know, magazines. It looks like this album's going to do very well. And that's what they used to do. Like when Island Records was Trojan, you know, they'd press them up and sell them out of the boot of a car. Those are true stories, right. you know? No. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so, um, you know, in some ways, I think it's probably not such a bad thing because anything goes almost, mm-hmm. you know? I, I agree. I think that it's uh, it's tougher. It's always been tough. I think that... There's less money. There's less... Is there any money? Yeah, I yeah, a little bit. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I guess there's always been the complaint that... It's tough, except in the mid-90s when everybody was getting signed. Yeah. Well, it's, you know, I mean, it's kind of, um, I think that in the in the 90s there were rules. Mm. It was like being in a parochial school, you know. You can't put a record out in September. Right. You can't do this in Christmas. Right. You have to do this here. You know, I mean, there were really rules, and in some ways that makes everyone's life easier because they don't have to invent this or come up with that or do that. <laughs> but in other ways, it sort of pigeonholes a lot of art right. that maybe needs to have something inventive happen. Now, I'm not saying there weren't projects that were uber-creative back then. There were, you know, but for the most part, you know, record labels, I believe, you know, this is how we do it. <laughs> right. There was a lot of that. There, there, there was, was structure there. Right. That, you know, rules. Do you... Uh, Which I don't think there are very many anymore. No. No. That's not. not so bad. I think when things were particularly bad in the latter half of the first decade of the 21st century, um, people just scrambled... At anything. Do you want to speak to that as someone who's worked with bands and brands? Um, I think you can. I do still think you can overexpose. I know you should be on your Facebook, and I know you should. And maybe this is just me being a little traditional about it. But um, a good example is an artist that I manage was overposting a few weeks ago, and um, the first couple of posts huge responses, immediate, like everyone flocked on. And by the third post, it was like slowly kind of coming down, and it was like a little too much. Um, and then there's there's a lack of posting, too. So, you know, I think there's – and branding is the same, too. I think, like anything else, I think you need to choose the right brands if you're going to go there, you know? I do think it's a whole I, – I, I, I don't think it's a bad thing. I don't think, you know – Synchronization, branding, any of that cross marketing is bad. You know, uh, the the YouTube channels like Full Frame and Big Frame and stuff. You know, I, I think they can be good for some artists, but I don't think the shoe fits everyone. Right. You know, and I think that's I think that's where the rules have gone out the window, because I do think that, um, and maybe the, you know, there is some possibility the rules never worked. <laughs> it's just that you had to buy the CD to get the music. 
<laughs> we'll never know. <laughs> but, um, but I think there's, you know, I think you do have to kind of look at your artists and decide which path they should go down. And, you know, maybe some of them should focus on YouTube and some of them should be on the road a lot. And then maybe some of them, you know, should be doing other things. And um, my artist Sioka does really, really well in Europe. She plays to, you know, huge crowds now, and the record's starting to take off there. But she siphoned a lot of her YouTube um, audience, which is quite huge, because she's a TED Award winner. You know, so that crowd was filtered in. So that, in some ways, that's a brand. Right. You know, she's part of that whole TED society, and I'm convinced that's what gave her the head start on and, YouTube. Because uh, there was not a lot, there was not a lot of marketing money in that record. There was not, there wasn't a big radio push. There was, um, there was, you know, a sync company put on it, and a bit of PR, a bit of, you know, there was a bit of marketing, a lot of digital work. A lot of digital work. But I think because she was a slam poet and she's a TED winner and she's, you know, I mean, she does some public speaking and stuff. I think all of those different areas helped her advance her music. And, you know, now the now two of her videos are completely viral. One's at 18 million and the other one's at a million. Wow. And there's no... And she's not no on songs. a label. Amazing. Well, she is. She's that's not fair. She's on Underground Sun, which is her co-writer producer's imprint. But you know, I'm not talking about she's getting a bucket load of money to push this up or anything. You know, this is truly viral, which led to a lot of gigs in Europe, which led to a distribution deal in Europe, which led to a lot of sync. You know, it's, it's all and it all kind of stemmed from the YouTube YouTube success. Okay, so two questions. One is uh, in terms of brand partnerships. Um, do you seek out brand relationships or do brand relationships come and find you? Is there a formula or is it? It's, bo it's both ways. Um, I, I called Disney the other day because I know they're a Z fan. There's, there's three people in the company that are Z fans. And I want to see if there's something we can do with this children's record because that makes sense. You know what I mean? And I know they're fans because they've told me in the past, one's in business affairs, one's in marketing. One actually works for Hollywood Records. So it's, you know, I mean, that's sort of semi-removed. But, um, but so I'm reaching out to those people. And so I'll seek that out. But um, another example is anthropology contacted me about Z. So I've kept that relationship. And of course, you know, the children's record isn't right for it. But when she does her fourth record, I'll reach out to Katie again at Anthropology. I keep a whole list in my computer, mm -hmm. all the people I've talked to that, you know, do licenses, branding. But branding's an interesting thing. You know, if you don't have the momentum, it's it's not going to come. It's it's almost like in I find it's almost like a record label in a way. They want to go on and they want to see that you have five hundred five hundred thousand people on your Facebook or whatever. They want to see that you have you know whatever eight hundred thousand hits on one of your YouTube videos and so they want to see that action because that's how they judge you now. They don't judge you record sales. Right, and they. Do you think that they look for songs that fit specific products? Or are they looking for this? According to a, uh, a, a placement company that I know, the woman who runs it, it comes in trends. She said you really can see it. Now, she does this every day, you know, so she sees the trends. But, like, you know, a few years ago, apparently ukuleles were in, you know, um, and, and you did see a lot of ukulele records out there. 
<laughs> you know, even Eddie Vedder did one. And um, so, and, and then, you know, she'll say there are times, and she goes, but it's not, it's not as simple as that. You know, there'll be some ads that um, another band that um, I'm thinking about starting working with, I haven't officially done it, but um, I sent their music to um, a person who does Sinks in L.A. She immediately came back with one song saying, I think this would be great for, um, it's a potato chip commercial. <laughs> and um, and um, I was like, well, do it. You know, I, I know I'm not officially working with the band yet, but why not? You know, they're not going to be mad at me for that. And um, But they're completely, you know, indie pop. You know what I mean? They're not... You know, they they don't sound like a lot of the other stuff that's going on out there that you're hearing in commercials and stuff. So she she claims there are trends, but, you know, a lot of times it's what they pick. But, it's you know, you come so close so many times. I can't tell you how many times some of my clients have come, like, one, one of them out of two. They're top two, top two. <laughs> then you're sitting there, and then all of a sudden, you know, they take a, someone from the left that wasn't even in the top two. Right. And, or, you know, you go back and you, you know, try to negotiate something. They're like, okay, we're taking this one. You know, it's competitive. Do you, uh, do you think that it's always helpful to have brand relationships? The first time I ever, I, the first time I was truly shocked when I saw a band in an advert, there were two of them. Uh, and this, I don't, I can't remember this was, but I'm thinking late nineties. Um, the Verve, the Nike ad, remember that? Yes. And I nearly fell off my chair. I couldn't believe it. I, and it was a really good ad. But I was like, oh, my God. And then Luscious Jackson and the Gap ad. And I'm fans of both bands. But when I saw Luscious Jackson, and, and I'm, I'm a big fan of Luscious Jackson, and I like Jill, and, you know, I, I, I just really like them. But I was like, wow. But, you know, it was interesting. They opened up a floodgate of bands that started doing it because that's when it started, mm -hmm. if you remember. And it wasn't really when it was on the decline yet. It was more, I, 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 it just kind of became acceptable. I think branding for the right artist is good, and I think the branding you choose is important. Like Z with Anthropology, or sorry, it was Free People. It wasn't Anthropology, same company. Okay. But, you know, it's... She looks like someone who wears free people clothes. It was it was a really great gig. She did one in San Francisco, one in the New York store. Um, and, uh, you know, I think artists ultimately know that. Right. Do you know what I mean? I think artists ultimately, deep down inside, know what the associate, if the association's right for them. Because um, my Irish band turned down some things. I was like, oh, really? <laughs> 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 but they knew it wasn't right for them, you know? Do you, have you, do you think you've ever put any of your bands uh, together with a brand that turned out not to be right? We talk about it at nauseum, so by the time they're doing it, typically, they're sure of it, so it's really discussed. It's never really done on like a, oh, this is a decent paycheck, let's just do it, okay. you know? So, so far, No. From what I can remember. That's fine. Yeah. <laughs> Let's hope it stays that way. Well, that's it. Thanks a lot for listening. See you next time. And uh, in the meantime, while you're out there, check out some bands. Check out, um, check out Fat White Family. Check out the Orwells. Wow, check out the Orwells. Oof, definitely check out the Orwells. And um, I, you know what? Stop there. The Orwells will keep you busy. Uh, that is Orwell's. All right. Thanks, everybody. See you soon.